Yep. I don't mind. I don't mind whatever. Okay, so, um, well, I'll just, for my own sake, um, yeah. So, this feels feels The moment you decide. Yeah. I don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) (laughs) Always edit. (laughs) So, this feels terribly awkward, but, uh, all right, so the plan here is to host a podcast. Uh, We're calling this the History of Christian... No, wait, a history of Christian theology. Um, yes. And uh, I tried to come up with more clever titles, but supposedly this is the best way uh, to get people to actually click on it, so we'll see. Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. My name is Chad Kim. With me this week are Tom Velasco and Trevor Adams as usual, and we also have a special guest, Benjamin Brandon. Ben did his undergrad and master's degrees at Boise State University studying classical history. He also teaches with Trevor and Tom uh, and used to teach with me as well at at a classical school in Boise, Idaho. We are bringing him on because he loves Plato more than anyone I know, and he also loves Jesus, which is a lot like the person that we're studying right now, Clement of Alexandria. So we thought it would be good to have him on to discuss some of the ideas that come from Clement's major work, the Stromata. The word Stromata in Greek comes from the, uh, their word for a patchwork. Clement says that these stromata, these patchwork ideas, are more like a collection of memories and teachings from his former teacher, Pantheus. Basically, it is a scattershot of themes and ideas that Clement thought would be good to write down for posterity. On this week's episode, we discuss several very in-depth and complex themes. It is important to state right off the bat that Clement's vision for Christianity stems from his training in philosophy, and he argues that Gnostic is too good of a word to cede or give away to the heretics. He thinks that Christians should recognize the need for knowledge, which is the root of the word Gnostic in Greek, and so he wants to call himself a Christian Gnostic. He is against Valentinus and the other Gnostics like Valentinus, the false Gnostics, as Irenaeus was also against Valentinus, uh, as we read in his Against Heresies several weeks ago. However, Irenaeus thinks that Christians should not use the term Gnostic anymore because of the false or heretical Gnostics. Basically, it gets confusing. But Clement does not want to give away this term, so he will continue to use Gnostic, usually in the positive sense. I want to reiterate that his ideas are very difficult to understand for most Western American Christians. In order to understand him fully, a good background in the classical world in addition to theology is necessary. In many seminaries in the U.S., Clement is hardly ever read. That is not to say there is nothing of value in his writings, though. I hope that we will be able to bring out some of his very interesting ideas in a sympathetic way and in a way that can be understood. He is not usually cataloged with the heretics by later theologians and should not be written off just because he is difficult or he loves philosophy, because he dearly loves God and the scriptures and does desire to live a virtuous life. One other side note, I mentioned several of the pagan philosophical schools. Clement argues about them in his Stromata. He believes that the Epicureans, the followers of Epicurus, who tried at their best to limit pain in this life, are sort of the lowest kind of Greek philosophers. They also didn't believe in God. The Stoics, the next up from the Epicureans, do believe in God, but they believe that the world is driven by fate, and it is humanity's and the philosophers' jobs to get our minds in accord with fate. The other major school were the Peripatetics, who were students of Aristotle. There was also the Academy, which was the school of Plato. For Clement, the greatest gift to the pagans from God was the philosophy of Plato, who believed in one God and the beauty uh, of the heavenly realm where God rests. And that was what he desired to attain, was to get into this heavenly realm. The main figure from the philosophy of Plato is, of course, Socrates. Clement believes that God gave the Greek philosophies to prepare them for the coming of Jesus, just like God gave the law to the Jews to prepare them for the coming of the Christ. Also, as another side note, the word Hellenistic just means Greek. It comes from the Greek word which defines themselves, uh, and their word is Hellene. So Hellenistic is just another word for Greek. 
If you get bored of some of this difficult stuff, jump ahead to about the 50th minute. There we discuss how Christians should view culture and the arts. That might be the most helpful for the broadest possible audience. Also, please remember to check out our Facebook page at a history of Christian Theolo- uh, at facebook.com slash a history of Christian theology and our blog at a history of Christian theology.com where I will have a map of the various uh, pl- various philosophical schools of Athens. Now with that said, we jump right into our conversation. Thanks for listening. This week we do have in addition to Tom and Trevor and I, we're gonna have uh, our friend Ben Brandon, Benjamin Brandon. Hey Ben. Hello, Mr. Chen. Um, and Ben is uh, another philosophy major, so we just really wanted to diversify things with having three <laughs> philosophy majors from. Oh no, you weren't a philosophy major. We're history. History. Oh, True. good. Yes. I, oh, now I feel better. All right, so we got a history major from B- BSU. Um, oh, ben loves philosophy so much that I don't know if it's fair not to consider him a philosophy guy. <laughs> we really yeah. need to get somebody on who just hates philosophy <laughs> and thinks that it's evil and especially because that really is kind of what what we're addressing here today but the problem is to to actually get a guy who hates philosophy on and we'd have to get him on to engage in a philosophical style debate and that's the problem you can just come on and condemn us you know with this like fiery you know, that's true and brimstone yeah no reasoned argument he just comes on and talks about how evil we are and how we shouldn't be doing this. It would so. at least be entertaining, yeah. Yep. <laughs> so we've we've made the joke here about the relationship between philosophy, theology, um, and uh, and what we do. So um, it will be no surprise to anyone who knows anything about Clement of Alexandria or who knows anything about us that we love philosophical dialogue. So um, we are reading the Stromata or Miscellanies from Clement, which is what he calls it at the end of book one. And and the Stromates in the singular uh, means a patchwork. Um, He also calls it his memoranda, the things that he remembers from his teacher. Um, So it's a, it's a very, it's a difficult book to categorize, um, but it focuses very heavily on what is the relationship between Hellenic Greek philosophy um, and basically faith between and basically Christian uh, truth, Christian theology. He doesn't call it theology yet. Theology is not a term that we will see for a while. Um, he does not consider himself primarily like this as any Hellenic school, um, although he probably likes Plato the best, but he's willing to draw from any sources, including a lot of what he calls barbaric sources, which uh, barbarian here, of course, just meaning um, uh, not Greek. Um, and so, um, but it uh, doesn't have quite the, I mean, I guess it's still kind of pejorative, but um, yeah. So um, what, what did all, what did we see here um, in his view of philosophy? What, why does he think that it's important uh, for the Christian theolo- for the Christian? Well, can I interject before answering that question and just also kind of cast this in more of a contemporary light? Um, because, and I know that we've mentioned this before, but over the past, I don't know, decade and a half of my life, I know that I've frequently come up against fellow believers who, when they hear that I studied philosophy, I will say, you know, they'll say something like, how did you keep your faith in that? Or isn't that anti-Christian? Or, wow, that's impressive, because really, we don't think Christians should study that. Or did you just study it so that you could beat other people in philosophy? (laughs) In other words, here's the thing, people just assume that philosophy is bad and that Christians would do good and well to stay away from it and that they probably should stay away from it because it's the kind of thing that just makes people give up their faith. And so I would encourage people to think of what, what Clement writes about in that, in that terminology and in that sense, because he is addressing those exact same issues. I mean, you can tell by the way he writes this, that he's hearing those exact same complaints and concerns from the people that he talks to, where they're basically saying, We need to elevate faith. Faith is separate from reason. We need to know that salvation and everything is through faith and not through reason. That's that's good. I think Clement is walking a fine line here. And maybe one way to understand his work is, as Tom was saying, um, he's wanting to respond to this anti-intellectual reaction that's happening in his period. A lot of the Christians promoting this orthodox 
orthodoxy that's becoming obscuring, meaning, you know, they want to minimize the philosophy. However, he's also having to avoid the other extremity, which is the uh, heresy of the Gnostics and how they're giving this primacy to philosophy that mm. is is perhaps heretical and it's not maybe consistent with the scriptures. And so he's, he's, he has two extremities that he's trying to avoid and that he's quite tactful in some areas In other areas. Um, it's more, uh, how should we say it? It's more um, vague and the lines are not drawn so clearly between the orthodoxy and heresy. They have yet to be defined. Yeah. He reminds me of Irenaeus when we read him in the sense that there's a lot of this, uh, you know, preeminence of Moses to Plato and all the good Greek philosophers really got everything they know anyway from what was revealed to Moses in the Hebrew scriptures. And there's a lot of like, uh, he's, you know, still putting, you know, basically all of truth still to be contained within Christian doctrine. But it is like, I think he says like a nut in the shell, basically, that you extract it from philosophy. And that's kind of his defense is, Hey, philosophy is good, and it's all—it's all these poor heathens had before, you know, uh, Christianity came along. And he—he he seems to act like it was actually one of the ways in which they could live righteously was by, or at least as righteously as they could live was by studying philosophy. So, well, he actually—he basically says the philosophers. Although you're right, he says that they borrowed from Moses. So he gives a primacy mm-hmm. to Moses. He, he makes an argument that Moses was older than the Greek philosophers right. and that probably they borrowed their own reasoning and some of their own thoughts from him. Mm-hmm. But he basically, well, he says Plato is Moses to the Greeks, right? He right. says, so Plato is just another Moses. And he says, there are lots of ways to the truth. Now, our listener needs to understand this does not mean that he's saying all roads lead to God. He is very clear that that salvation and that a true knowledge of God only comes through Jesus Christ. But when he says there are many roads that lead to the truth, he means there are many paths and roads that lead to the knowledge of Jesus. And so Moses is one of those roads, but he thinks Plato is also one of those roads and that Plato was basically like God's voice to the Greeks. Moses was to the Jew. Plato is to the Greeks. They both lead to Jesus. So that's kind of my take on at least, you know, that, but he does give primacy to Moses. Yeah. Um, Which seems to be a recurring theme in these guys. I was, I never even really knew that. Yeah. Although it's interesting because it seems like, um, what is it? Justin, Justin says that the Greek philosophers borrowed the stories from Moses. Whereas Clement seems to be more inclined to, say that the thought is borrowed, like the thinking and the, the the theology, for lack of a better term, the understanding of God. He includes stories, but but it's really the way that they thought. Well, I was going to direct it towards Ben. One of, uh, one of the things that Trevor mentioned was Irenaeus. So we've already read the against heresies from Irenaeus, and his primary antagonist, his primary um, interlocutor uh, is Valentinus, who... Um, Clement express explicitly rejects um, as not being what Christian thought should be. Um, however, he wants to preserve um, no, uh, a, a knower, um, Gnosticos, um, one who knows, um, which is the same root that we get a Gnostic, and it's the same word. Um, and so I wanted to turn it sort of to Ben. Uh, ben has thought a lot about what the relationship between sort of the Greek Gnosticism and Christianity uh, might be, could be, should be, um, and what we can learn from Clement, who, you know, the, the difference between Clement and Irenaeus is, is Clement wants to preserve the term. Irenaeus is against it. He says the Gnostic is this whole other thing. So I was hoping, Ben, you could expound on and what you see from Clement in that way. Can I interject really quickly just to set up for Ben? Because our listeners may not be aware of, well, they're not aware of this history that maybe Chad and I and Ben have in our conversations. But Chad and I have tended to be more Aristotelian in our reasoning, which uh, I don't can't get too much into that except for to say that it's a little more uh, earthy, maybe, <laughs> um, without going into too much. Ben has been uh, kind of more uh, a devotee of Plato, and and it is so perfect that Chad invited um, Ben on this particular episode because, as he's just referencing, there's a bunch of sections in here where Clement, who clearly opposes Valentinus 
and the Gnostics that, that Irenaeus is writing against and that Justin is writing against, he does say, well, what, what does a good Gnostic look like? He's like, what is, what is a good knower? What is a good Gnostic? And so it is kind of funny because sometimes we'll give, we'll give Ben a nudge and make fun of him, say, um, call him a Gnostic or something, but he's a good Gnostic. Right. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to uh, point out that Clement does struggle to redeem that word Gnostic, and he refers to the Christian Gnostic, and that that seems like a mutually exclusive term now that can't be used. But I think he is right to do so, meaning Gnosis, that term can be redeemed. Um, and the extremity to which the Gnostics uh, took that term, I think, for Clement, focus around the issue of Gnosis, uh, somehow replacing faith mm. as what was sufficient for salvation. Mm. So if, if he's saying that uh, it's not just the faith of the pious Christian now, but it must be the Gnosis as well of the elect, um, that's where Clement wants to draw the line, and that's where he can say that's too far, and that, that is heretical. And Clement will not say that. He will say that faith is sufficient. However, he, there's plenty of room for this um, enlightened vision, and I think that this is part of the beauty of his writing and the beauty of studying philosophy, it, it helps us to see perhaps in a different way, maybe a fuller way, um, but not that uh, without it, uh, it's insufficient for salvation. So his Gnosticism, I believe, is going to focus on showing the uh, wisdom of God and the knowledge of God um, and glorifies God. But ultimately, if we see that the wisdom and philosophy of the Greeks occupies the same position in which the law did for the uh, Hebrews, of course we wouldn't say that the law was sufficient for salvation. In the same way, of course, we can't say that wisdom, Sophia, or even Gnosis for the Greeks is going to be sufficient. So I think that that's probably the best way to show where he draws the line. Um, so Gnosis is a wonderful thing, but let's not take that too far to the uh, heretical view. Yeah, I love that comparison to the law. That's really good. Mm-hmm. So on in chapter 7, just to get a little bit into the text, he says, It is therefore of no advantage to them after the end of life, even if they do good works now, if they have not faith. Um, so uh, just to reiterate uh, Clement's point that you need faith um, in addition to knowledge. And one of the things that I think is missed often in Gnosticism and actually has parallels to what we'll get to maybe, you know, um, the next millennia or something, uh, whenever we get, whenever we get to the medieval period, um, is scholasticism, both in its Catholic and its Protestant kind, where the focus is only on knowledge. Um, and actually Clement has some things to say to that. He, he thinks that faith is part of the, uh, overall picture of what a Christian um, who's pursuing truth has. They have faith, and it's not at the it's not only knowledge, which as I understand the Gnostics, they think that it is only having a certain knowledge that is just given to you um, by someone else who knows, by some authority. Um, and that is not what Clement is trying to demonstrate. If I may just add um, part of the conclusion, though, then, then why why such fervency to advocate the Gnosticism? And, and this is, I believe, what Tom was referring to earlier um, in chat as well. Why for, I feel compelled for, to save it is on the other extreme, of course, was the, that unreflective Christian that's saying we don't need to have this knowledge. Now, when we say knowledge in the present day, we can often make this a very um, concrete, like knowing f- objective facts, you know, kind of a almost quantitative thing. That's not what knowledge was, I believe, for the, the ancients in the way they describe it. It's this, this spiritual insight so it's a very spiritual thing. And I think Clement wanted to respond to what he would call the uh, quote-unquote orthodox by saying, be careful not to write off this Gnosis completely, meaning if your faith is so unreflective that you're just assuming something based on authority, then he would question whether that's even true faith. And so he thought that maybe Gnosis could be a sort of aid, as he, as he says, philosophy being the handmaiden of theology, perhaps this Gnosis helps us to have the faith, um, meaning avoiding the obscurant view in which uh, the orthodox would say uh, philosophy was like, you know, the actor's mask meant to deceive and trick us. And he's like, no, not at all. True knowledge will lead you to the, the truth. Well, I, I think that there's a fundamental misunderstanding that most, maybe people, I was thinking Christians I've talked to, have when they make a distinction between faith and reason. We act as if reason is this part of our brain that utilizes, I don't know, 
philosophical input or scientific input. And then there's this other part of our brain, which is the faith part, and it only brings in maybe scriptural input or something along those lines. But reason is a mechanism in your brain, and you apply it to everything. It's not a question of whether or not you use reason or not. It's a question of whether or not you use good reasons or bad reasons. So, for instance, when somebody says, well, I believe that the world was created in six days because the Bible tells me so, he's using reason, right? He's using this, his reason is looking something like this. Everything the Bible says is true. The Bible says this, therefore it's true, right? He's, what he's not doing is he's not reflecting in that instance on counter arguments, other views, uh, other interpretations of that particular text. And so, the thing is, is when somebody else comes along and says, well, I have maybe a different take because of a bunch of different things that I've considered or whatever, then he's kind of poo-pooed for believing in reason rather than the text or something like that. The reality is we're all using reason. It's just a question of how far we take the reason. And now don't get me wrong. I'm sympathetic to people who worry about reason because I do believe that reason can sometimes drop us off a cliff. I've seen people, so to speak, who overthink things, maybe for lack of a better term, Mm. and that overthinking kind of drives them into despair. And I know that that can happen, so I I don't want to just act like there isn't a legitimate concern. But this fundamental breakdown, which says, I'm not going to reason, I'm going to have faith, is just, it's just, nobody does that. We all reason. It's just an issue of, the you know, what kind of, uh, evidences and what kinds of premises are we using? That's it, I think. Well, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I probably am. But <laughs> I mean, when my understanding, or at least I've heard this repeated before, that um, this is one of those early fathers who demonstrated that faith didn't just mean basically believing something without reason, or yeah. like wasn't separate from reason, but rather that the word he uses and the way he uses it is he acts like it's this act of trusting in something Mm -hmm. rather than just believe. Yeah. Believing for either lack of reasons or despite good reasons not to, or something like that, but rather that to have, you know, uh, faith in these things is to, yeah, to trust in them and to trust in their truth, basically. Um, Yeah. and book two, um, we're, you know, we're moving quick, but chapter four, he says, should one say that knowledge is founded on demonstration by a process of reasoning? Let him hear that first principles are incapable of demonstration, for they are known neither by art nor, art nor sagacity. Um, and he says they can only be apprehended by faith alone. Um, and so, and, and this is where, like, we're already getting deep into, you know, knee deep into his thought here where I'm worried, uh, you know, this is going to be, these are going to be some of the most difficult, uh, readings that we do. And there's a, there's a reason that not a lot of people know who Clement of Alexandria is. <laughs> um, his thought is complex. It's deep. Um, but it's really powerful. And so what he's arguing here is that in order for reason to get off the ground, you have to assent to some basic ways of reasoning, some basic proof, some basic truths. Um, and he says that we all do this. Um, so he actually anticipates the problem that we have in the 21st century where people say what Tom's already talked about, the difference between faith and reason. Clement's already there. He's already saying, yep, this is going to be a problem because some people aren't aren't aware that they've already started with first principles. And the best example I can give is the scientific method. In order for science to get to work, they have to have faith in the method. And that's an authority. Um, And so all that Clement wants to do is he wants to say, hey, we're all, we're all up to this, but who, why are you being persuaded? So another route for faith is being persuaded. And, and he says, actually, do you really have hope? And so he says, I can take my first principles from scripture and from God. Um, I use philosophy to demonstrate what those are and make proofs from them. But I can, I can be persuaded because I've had an experience of God that Ben is talking about. Um, and that is maybe more of the, he's saying that it actually, um, I, I get to take, I take my first principles from God himself um, and, and that kind of is, is where he, he thinks that maybe he has a leg up on some of the other philosophers. By the way, 
Um, you mentioning that, Chad, just makes me think of a debate that I saw last year that I, I kind of felt bad listening to people talk about because I, I feel like people in general misunderstood it. And that was a debate between Bill Nye, the science guy, and Ken Ham. I don't know if our listeners are aware of that particular debate. I'd encourage you guys to watch it because I think it's a good example of what's being talked about here. They both argued against each other because neither one of them, uh, I don't know to the degree to which they were, well, I think they were aware, but they refused to discuss anything uh, in the same terms. And what I mean by that is, Ken Ham comes out and says, look, I have a worldview that is built entirely on a certain reading of Genesis 1, uh, a literal rendering of that, which, dis- which basically says that God created the world in six days. I use that reading to then inform the way that I look at the rest of everything. I mean, I use that reading to inform why I see the world the way that I do. And he gave examples of how he applied his own kind of take on science uh, in, in such a way that he would kind of interpret things in that lens. Mm-hmm. Now, Bill Nye, now it's not that Bill Nye was, uh, you know, refusing to acknowledge that or any of those things. Bill Nye was just saying, look, there's a certain way you go about doing science and you're not doing that. Yeah. He just, and, like, and science is crappy. <laughs> you're not doing science the way that you're supposed to do science. And that if you do science the way that we all understand science is supposed to be done, then you come at these conclusions. And so what ends up happening is, although I think both of those in and of themselves are fine points, they have to find a way to talk about those principles. And they have to find a way to either agree on a common language or to start fighting on the principles themselves. Because you can't keep arguing at kind of a big level if you don't first understand that there is a basic fundamental underlying assumption that that informs and explains why you believe what you believe. Yep. Ben, you got anything to add there? Yeah, there's a lot. First of all, I I, I think it's a great thing that much of what I wanted to say just a moment ago, you said almost verbatim. Like I had this written out with the first principles. I was going to use a scientific method as an example. (laughs) All right, well, I'm glad you guys are covering the bases. Um, And I like how Tom illustrated that. I think part of the frustration that society feels and maybe individually we feel is that we confuse the, we, we might even say the realm of what um, each subject is supposed to, to operate. For example, I believe Clement, I'm trying to remember where it is. He says that the lightning bolts and so forth are from natural causes that yes, God ultimately controls those, but he's happy to let that have a relatively naturalistic explanation. And in fact, I almost would argue that a lot of these Christians are, are happy to recognize what mythology is and to um, let go of the old mythology. And hence in this movement in Alexandria, uh, much more so with Origen, perhaps in Clement, but also very much with Philo, is to see a lot of the Old Testament um, analogously. Because what was happening is the Greek uh, philosophers were looking to their mythology and understanding the mythology as symbol. And when we say symbols, sometimes we want to minimize that. And, of course, where you might see I'm going with this is Genesis. Oh, that's, that's merely symbols. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is symbolic thinking is the highest form of thought. Um, metaphors, analogy, and ultimately parables are the chosen uh, forms of communication for the great teachers, uh, Plato and, and Jesus and so forth, because it communicates the essence of an idea. And so when we're talking about Gnosticism, we're trying to get to the very heart and essence of some of these things. And I think it's a mistake for um, maybe a spiritual uh, mindset, uh, a Gnostic mindset, for example, to interfere with some of these naturalistic explanations because that's not the domain, that's not the realm in which it's meant to explain. We're seeing that, that overlap with, uh, for example, the, the Ken Ham and Bill Nye debate where there's probably some overlap there that shouldn't be overlapping in a certain way. Um, so I guess just to conclude, what, what I'm getting at is the Gnostic vision is something profoundly spiritual and inward and in that even to articulate and communicate that so much is lost in translation that people aren't so much disagreeing with it as misunderstanding what's being communicated. Yeah. 
Um, I was going to, you know, that's a, it's a perfect point. And, um, you know, just to give a little bit of summary of some of this stuff in a way that Clement goes through, he looks at, you know, oftentimes we talk about different schools of philosophy in the ancient world, the Epicureans, the Stoics, the Peripatetics, the Aristotelians, and, you know, and there are just, there are a few of these, the Plato's Academy. There are a few of these different schools and Clement sort of goes through them all. And I bring them up to say, um, it's interesting that I would all of them sort of agree uh, that the sage is the highest goal of philosophy. Uh, now, the sage is the one with perfect knowledge and virtue. Um, and there are different views about whether or not it's even possible to be a sage or to become a sage or if there ever was a sage. Uh, Plato sort of introduces it uh, through Socrates in the symposium, this notion of the sage. Um but all these different philosophical schools approach this question of the sage differently, but they all want to live virtuously um, to, to some degree. They just explain it differently. And I think that for, for Clement, um, he, another word that he might say is that ultimate, or another way that he might say it is, is that Moses was a kind of sage and Jesus is the ultimate sage. Um, and there are different ways to get to that. Um, and, and so, you know, so, the, and, and that's kind of a, an overview of some of the different areas that he goes. Um, and basically a philosopher, as Plato explains it, is one who's not yet a sage, but who loves wisdom and who's searching for wisdom, who's searching to become the sage who can be completely happy and completely virtuous. That's good. I think Hebrews, um, I like the notion that it could have been written by Apollos in Alexandria, maybe, or Eat Alexandrian, perhaps. And there's this idea, very platonic, um, that he writes in Hebrews about the high priest, which is akin to the way you're describing the sage. The, the high priest of old times um, is um, a shadow, is the word that Hebrews uses, a shadow of the typos, and we might say archetype, um, and Christ is the archetype, and there are these types of him, these shadows of him, um, in which Moses and maybe even a Socrates could be. Um, so I think that's very consistent with Alexandrian thought in general, um, and Clement does speak to that. In fact, he, he points to Socrates defining the sage, or rather Plato um, in the Republic, and he points to that passage about the, the truly righteous one, um, that sage, uh, would be brought to the point of crucifixion. And he, he views that as a sort of revelation um, for the, the Platonists. Yeah, just kind of referencing, just kind of more fully explaining what Ben was talking about there. Plato, who was alive 400 years prior to Jesus, in his book, The Republic, he talks about the, quote, righteous man, end quote. Um, and it's a vision of a righteous, like, what would the righteous man look like? And he's doing this for a purpose, that is, he's trying to show that being truly virtuous is better than than just appearing to be virtuous. Uh, the, argue, the person who's arguing with him is saying, why not get whatever you can and just have a reputation for righteousness? And so... What Socrates or what Plato does is he he tries to demonstrate how the really happy man has only his righteousness and nothing else. And in the conversation that he has with a guy named Glaucon, who's Plato's brother, actually, and actually it's Socrates in the conversation, Socrates and Glaucon. Glaucon says, "You have to paint for me a picture of a, of this righteous man." And Plato says, "Well, he will be despised by all because he will expose their sin. He will be homeless. He will wander as a vagabond in the streets." And then he says, and at the end, they will take this righteous man, and because he is exposed who they were, they will pluck out his beard, they will beat him, and they will crucify him. And so kind of the argument then that Clement and that others make is that, hey, this is kind of a spiritual revelation that God gave to Plato for the Greeks to kind of prepare them for the reality of Jesus. Um, it's kind of an anticipation. In other words, God is a God of everybody, not just of the Jews. And through Moses and the law, he gave us a path to Jesus. But what about all those Jews? Uh, or what about all those Greeks who didn't know the law? Well, he gave them as well. And of course, he makes the comment that Chad referenced earlier, that the Greeks borrowed a lot of their stuff from the barbarians. And so that means that God clearly spoke to them as well. Yeah, one thing that's sort of interesting, um, and I think here we might get into some 
maybe some more. I was trying to find a way to bring us into some different positions that we might hold on some of this. Um, You know, uh, Clement is reading the Old Testament. He's looking at Moses and he's looking at him through the lens of Philo of Alexandria, who was a Jew who read the Old Testament in the lens of uh, through the lens of, uh, of, of Plato. And um, he makes Moses look like a Greek. <laughs> and <Yeah>. so I, <laughs> I guess I'm wondering how compelling we find this. Um, and, you know, it should be, you know, Clement is reading the Old Testament in Greek um, through the Septuagint, a translation done near Alexandria in, in Egypt because of Ptolemy, actually in Alexandria, I think. Um, because of uh, of one of the kings, one of the um, the generals from Alexander, he wants a translation of this Hebrew work. And so, so to what extent do we think that his characterization of Moses is the same one that we find in the Old Testament? Yeah, I'd like to hear a good answer to this because <laughs> I personally found it really strange. And I've actually found this strange with everyone we've read who in general has given – just a preeminence to Moses and saying Plato is inspired by him. I'm like, did I, did I read the same thing? Like <laughs> Plato is inspired by Moses. Like uh, I, I'm wondering, I, I wonder. Yeah. What? No, I I'm with you. I, I don't think Plato ever read Moses. I don't think any of those guys, uh, I, well, regardless, even that, like, regardless of that, like we'll say, yeah, sure. I don't think so either, but like, how is he even reading that into it? either like that that alone is kind of weird to me like oh well ideas confirmation bias i mean um, we all read things through the lens of our culture i think and so consequently everybody tries to in they basically every single people group i believe this fully and and this is something that i really hope our listeners consider i think as you go throughout history we inculcate our christianity with our culture um in such a way that it's hard sometimes for us to actually differentiate and determine what part of our Christianity is essential and core to Christianity and what part of it came from the culture we grew up in. I think you see this really evidently in, and I don't say this to pick on any particular group, but I see it very evidently, for instance, in Eastern Orthodox, in the Eastern Orthodox church, where you very clearly are marrying Eastern, certain aspects to Greek culture uh, to Christianity, and it's hard sometimes to 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 not differentiate. I mean, to to distinguish between yeah. those things. In other words, being Christian just means being Greek, right? And it's not just them. I see it in Southern fundamentalist, right? Um, oh, yeah. America alone, for instance, in the history of the world, has had this really strange relationship to drinking alcohol. Mm-hmm. Nobody else in history has had this problem. I mean, not that there haven't been drunks or alcoholics elsewhere, but you don't find other cultures that wrestle with the drinking of alcohol historically. Only America has is this overarching thing, you know, this battle. So we've had this constitutional amendment where we ban alcohol, which is insane. And consequently, though, I mention this because it is an integral part of what I take to be fundamentalist Southern Christianity that we associate virtue and uh, obedience to the Bible and to the gospel with teetotaling, meaning abstaining from alcohol, which is something that you won't find in any other culture ever. What about Islam? But, uh, I, no, they drink. No, no yeah. they don't. They, no, don't? they don't? No. No. No, no wine. No, it's absolutely forbidden. And that's why the Russians chose to convert to Orthodoxy instead of Islam. It's because they didn't get any drinks. For real? Yeah. yeah Islam doesn't drink, from my understanding. Dang. Yeah, it's absolute prohibition. Really? Yeah. Yep. There are people who disobey that. Yes. Well, yeah. (laughs) Like I have known. I mean, I've known quite a few guys. I, you know, I mean, I think like if you're in Iranian airspace, uh, to this day, they won't like you know give you drinks (laughs) on the plane. Well, I I do. So again, now just to save face with our listeners, (laughs) I was, I was, yeah, no, it's all right. You can make me look foolish, but. I was nonetheless envisioning European, the European world. That's what I was contemplating. I was thinking of France. I was thinking of Italy. I was thinking of England. I was thinking of the different periods in, uh, yeah. you know, in in right. the in modern history. I was thinking of the Puritans who lived in England in the in the you know I mean you know the Puritans in the 1600s in England. You know that all of these guys, you know, drinking alcohol was a part of their culture, and the thought of becoming 
teetotal. It just wasn't an issue. That wasn't a thing. And I only say it because it has, it's a part of American culture that is prop, cropped up for any number of reasons, but which became a part of the Christianity of America. That's kind of the point I was making. I was thinking in terms of Christianity, but I honestly didn't know that about sure. Muslim, Muslim culture. So I, to kind of, I think part of what Tom was getting at is this, this idea of how we're maybe, is it almost reinterpreting the way we see the world through this, this lens? And I want to respond to Chad's kind of uh, point here. I, I honestly think that it's likely that Plato was influenced by Hebrew thought. Um, and I, and I want to make a bigger point here that I think, and I'm coming at this as a Christian that I believe in uh, providence of God, that um, it, it seems likely that Judea was planted where it was, when it was and how it was, because the massive influence that I think it received from nations, but um, conquered, they conquered uh, just as the Greeks were conquered by the Romans and then Greek influence split, spread all throughout Rome. I think as Judea was conquered repeatedly, its influence spread, its spiritual influence spread uh, throughout the, the Near East. Now, it's easy to want to have this, you know, Judeo-Christian-centric view. Um, however, there is a strong argument, I think, to say that the monotheism is minimized um, sometimes, the, the importance of the monotheism of the Hebrews. And like, well, yeah, there's Zoroastrianism, and, and we want to point to some other things. But no, the, the conception that they had of God is so powerful that I think that it it is an important foundation of Platonic thought. The fact that uh, his thought comes ultimately back to the one um, with such fervence is more than just the material monists. It, it seems to have this spiritual vigor that uh, the, the Hebrews had. So I, I think that there must have been some sort of influence, even if it were uh, indirect. Could you explain something? Because I didn't follow real quickly. So let me just kind of reinterpret it, make sure that I got this right. So then are you saying that... Plato's understanding of kind of one God in particular was probably influenced by certain Judaist uh, or uh, Judas, uh, Jewish thought. Sorry. Um, is that where, because I was just got confused when you said the monotheism was minimalized. So I wasn't sure who was minimizing oh, it or who. I simply you know. meant we, we might minimize the significance of the Jewish monotheism and how, how just revolutionary um, that was for man to come to this, this state. Um, meaning if you take that assumption and the monotheistic God, as the Jews conceive of it, it will influence all the rest of the philosophy. That, that's kind of a, a focal point. Um, and so to be honest, I don't want to take too much time to elaborate my views on this, but if, if we could say something to the effect of there being a zeitgeist and that if there is a sort of spirit of the age of the ancient world, that I think the Jews implanted this, this seed in it, as it were, and that seed did spread throughout the ancient world. Not quite physically, as we might want to think, or geographically, but meaning that the Jews fundamentally seem to alter this ancient zeitgeist, as they did for the Persians, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, eventually the Greeks, and then the Romans. Um, and so my point is that even if it were indirect, which that's, that's a lot of wiggle room there, but this monotheism radiating out from Israel, I think, ultimately did affect Greek thought. And we know that Plato did travel to Egypt and so forth, which had a massive Jewish population. Um, and so it was likely he was in contact with Jews and um, therefore it'd be hard to argue that there wasn't at least some influence, even if it were minimal. And just for our listeners to kind of clarify what zeitgeist means, um, <laughs> Ben said spirit of the age, but uh, which is the best, uh, that's the translation of it. And I guess what I would liken it to is if you observe a culture, you will just note that for some reason, and it's not super clear why, culture tends to move in certain directions. And what that means practically is lots of different people start making choices to change kind of the way they think. So kind of playing off of what I just said, the zeitgeist of Christianity for the past 15 years has been a movement for the first time since prohibition away from teetotaling uh, in that the younger generation of Christians are accepting uh, alcohol as kind of an accept as an acceptable behavior. So that's a zeitgeist in the church. Culturally, the church is changing. And of course, you have that in subcultures like Christianity, as well as in uh, larger cultures. So culturally, America, for instance, over the last 10 years, their views have changed uh, widely on, for instance, on lots of things, but for instance, uh, homosexuality, right? There's been a, a distinct movement within America in terms of their positions and thoughts on that subject or uh, on the use of marijuana and things of that nature. You find things that in the 50s and 60s were not acceptable or were looked at as kind of 
taboo are becoming, uh, they're, they're changing. And, and it's hard to say why that happens. I mean, obviously you have education and you have um, cultural, you know, points that like, for instance, uh, uh, t- television and movies and books and things and music and people all imbibe this stuff. They drink it in. But the big thing is, is for whatever reason, a culture moves and shifts a certain way. And so that's what Ben meets by zeitgeist. And so he's saying that there was a zeitgeist spreading out from Israel, uh, a movement towards monotheism, which means a belief in one God. So um, one thing that just um, this may be getting a little too in depth, but I thought it's worth noting the problem with this view about how much the Jews were able to influence the room, uh, world around them is the and I, I this is an important the extent works that we have. So those works that we still have from the ancient world don't show any connection as far as we can tell between Jews and Greeks. Um, so Herodotus writes this long work. Um, and, and as far as we can tell, there's no influence, um, from Judaism directly, um, on Herodotus's work, um, where he looks at people from as far as India to Egypt and a few different areas. Um, and, and there are other works to like that, but none of them really mention the Jews. And so it's hard to argue from what we have, um, a direct influence. Now, on the other side of that, I would give lend credit to Clement and Ben's argument um, that there could have been an influence even if we can't show it, even if we can't demonstrate it, because Clement is living in Alexandria with the largest ancient library that we know that was destroyed. Um, and so it's entirely possible. And he quotes things in this book that is that we don't even have anymore. Um, and so, you know, it could be that we just don't have that work that mentions the influence um, and Clement is clearly one of the most learned men um, that we – He, I mean, I would say he is the most learned men that we have re- read. Um, the largest library that has since been destroyed. We don't have it anymore. That was – it kind of – the way it was a little ambiguous the way you said it because you said the largest library that had been destroyed. And so – Oh, sorry. There was a big library in his day, tons of works. We don't have those anymore because it was destroyed – after Clement, but way before now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah um, Caesar in the Civil Wars. He, so, and one thing that was interesting, I, I guess I, you know, I, I, I this is going to get real esoteric real quick, um, but it is one difference between the way that I tend to think and maybe Tom tends to think and the way Ben thinks is Ben um, – Ben recognizes the the sort of spiritual nature of philosophy, and he's mentioned it a few times. And one thing, you know, for uh, for Aristotelians, for uh, modern a lot of modern philosophers, we tend to think only about our reason, our rationality, and what we can know in a very strict, um, refined sense, um, and what we can say about what we know, um, and. So the debate that Ben and I and, and Tom sometimes have and, and Trevor have is we tend to look at, you know, some of us tend to look at things a little bit more down to earth, um, a little bit more uh, what we can show, what we can say, um, these kinds of things. But Ben has this, he, you know, he loves from Plato uh, the the spiritual um, underpinnings of it. So philosophy wasn't just about, you know, the a- a- academics being really smart and being really logical. In fact, it was, it might be what we would call religious today, spiritual today. So do you want to say, I mean, you know, do you want to say something else about how you see some of that in, in Clement or, and how that influences how you think that relates to the Christian faith? Yeah, I think this is a, a great topic because, um, I, I, I'm cheating a little bit. This is this is kind of from Henry Chadwick, his summary of uh, oh, yeah. uh, Clement. But Clement often will say that he's going to take the best um, and the truest, you know, from any philosophy, and that that's true philosophy. And uh, for example, when he famously says, when Paul is denouncing philosophy of this age, he's denouncing, you know, the Epicureans and um, you know skepticism and. Um, He's denouncing this, this, the, the bad philosophy, the skeptical philosophy. The good philosophy, though, uh, comes in the form of basically the metaphysics of Plato. But Aristotle offers a lot of the logic and the structure, and the Stoics offered a lot of the ethics. And so there we have a threefold division. Um, and 
I think that that's important for the Christian to realize that that's the beauty of Christianity. Whatever's true is true, and um, we can find that anywhere. And so from Plato, we can have the metaphysics, which tends to lead into the spiritual a bit more. From Aristotle, we can see some great logic and, and, and truth there. Um, and finally, the Stoics, he agreed with a lot of their ethics and thought that this idea of the inward morality that the uh, Stoics promoted was right on and consistent with Christianity. So I guess that's my way of saying that Clement had such a broad mind that he saw uh, truth wherever it may fall. In fact, my favorite analogy from him is uh, he, he says it's like the rain falling. You remember that? He says it's like the rain falling and the rain perhaps being this spiritual truth. And he was the only real difference is some places have rich soil in which I think he's alluding to the uh, Hebrews, the Jews. In other places, it's much more barren, um, meaning there's opportunity for all, but only some of the soil is, is uh, rich enough to bear fruit. And so I guess that's my, my interpretation of seeing metaphysics growing from the Greeks and, and the logic from Aristotle and, and so forth. Yeah. Oh, actually, real quick, that made me think. Uh, Clement kind of contradicts himself on this front, or at least it seemed like it. Maybe I just wasn't following him. But he, he mentions, or he, he says what, what Ben just referenced. He, he says that it's good for us to read the good philosophy and the bad philosophers like Epicurus, he mentions. And he says, those guys, they're bad. We should stay away from them. But then elsewhere, he says, all philosophers hold part of the truth so to speak. And he seems to say, and correct me if I'm wrong, that it seems that his argument is that as Christians, we should mine all of these things for the truths that are in them um, so that we, for a number of reasons, but one, so we can use them as kind of guides for non-believers to kind of lead them to the faith, um, but also so that we can better understand truth in a more cosmic and real sense. We have a better understanding of who God is and his plan in the universe all of that kind of stuff. But he does warn us, you don't want to spend too much time in it because too much time can corrupt you, which all of this brings me back. And, you know, I, I know that we have so many things to cover, but I really want to explore this more. We don't have time tonight or right now, I know. Um, but it makes me think of my question last week as well, because these are the questions I really wrestle with that they were wrestling with then. Last week, I pointed out, that I, that I fundamentally am not real sure on the degree and extent to which I can partake of the arts in the world. You know what I mean? Uh, Christians have always had this weird relationship with the arts. What can we take in? Some people go puritanical, and what that means is none of it. We get basically nothing. Um, some people say all of it. There's really you know no holds barred. Uh, and then the same thing with philosophy. To what degree is it helpful, beneficial, uplifting? To what degree does it encourage me in my faith and does it draw me closer to Christ to study the philosophers? What is, where is the line drawn, both for myself and as we're trying to help out other people? Like what, like, for instance, we used to wrestle with, I used to be on staff at a church here in town and we would wrestle with what books we could sell in our bookstore because on the one hand, we didn't want to accept, we didn't want to put books in that somebody might read and be led astray by. On the other hand, we didn't want to just put in books that were 100% in agreement with what, you know, we as individuals believed. And so like what is, you know, what is the, and I know we can't answer that right now, but it seems to me that that is largely motivating him here and it's largely what motivated him in the last work in his work on the heathen, his exhortation to the heathen. And I think it's something that our listeners are curious about. I mean, I think we have people who fall into the entire spectrum on that when it comes to art and philosophy. There's some, they'll just avoid it altogether. Some will take it all in and others are discriminatory, but they don't know exactly where to discriminate. Well, book one, he says something about uh, like basically things that are sustenance for our souls. And he talks about, you know, one may partake of knowledge uh, and, and then he does say something like, and one may partake of Hellenistic philosophy, in which he basically says is uneatable. Like, he's like, you can't eat it or something. But then later, yeah, I mean, later he's also, when he's talking about philosophy, he's going, well, those people that criticize it and say you shouldn't read it, they haven't read it. That's kind of, that's kind of his idea. He's just like, they don't know. They, they don't know what's contained, and if they really read it all, they would understand that, yeah, I think it's just what we've been saying this whole time. 
which mm-hmm. alludes to what you're saying, there's nuggets of truth. So, I mean, I don't know if it's perfectly analogous to your art question, but yeah, I mean, yeah, there's, there's the good that you can find. It's kind of what you were actually saying, Ben. I mean, that just ideally there is this truth and then we can find it in other things. And so we, we know the truth. And then, so then, or at least according to Clement, that's how it would be like, we know this truth and then we can go find the little nuggets of truth hidden amongst philosophy. Yeah. Clement pretty clearly on this point warns of aesthetics and beauty. And he says, beware of that beauty that ensnares or corrupts. Um, and so he, he's, he's very cautious about it. I think Tom raises a great point though, because I mean, does beauty, I mean, palos, that's, that's one of the favorite words for Plato to use of the divine, the, the, the beautiful or the noble. Is there something inherently good and spiritual about that, edifying even? I, I think there's some kind of answer that uh, the food analogy is so useful because the real question is not how good does it taste, though. We have to get beyond the taste and say how nutritious is it. And so partaking of culture and the arts, um, we, we have to look past, is it bad if it's super delicious, delicious good food, and there's delicious bad food? So that's kind of not the uh, controlling factor. It, it's the nutrition of it, how much nutrition is contained within it. And if, if it's just, just a tiny speck of it, then it's probably not worth our time. Um, mm. There's ulterior motives in that case, and that's probably what needs to be addressed. you got to stop reading Harry Potter eventually and, you know, read, read that philosophy you've been putting off. <laughs> that was just totally me telling you about my life right now. <laughs> well, I was trying to find it. He, has a, uh, he describes the beauty of Christ at one point. Um, um, where does he say? Oh, shoot. But uh, he was sort of re- – I was just sort of reiterating some of what Ben talks about. But, um, you know, I, I think um, one other point that he makes at the end in terms of what is the usefulness of philosophy, um, and he takes – actually, a lot of this is taken from Plato. But he says uh, – he is on, uh, let's see, chapter 22, assimilation to God then. So that as far as possible, a man may become righteous and holy with wisdom, he lays down as the aim of faith. And the end, to be that restitution of the promise, which is affected by faith. So, I mean, basically, you know, which is a little bit, um, I mean, it's, a, it's still, a, it's not exactly obvious. But if your assimilation to God is, is sort of imitate, if you're imitating God um, as far as is possible, and you're pursuing righteousness and holiness with wisdom, that's your goal. Um, now, it's difficult, of course. Like I said, that's not like, a, you know, when I was a kid, I always wanted to know exactly what the line was, or I wanted to know, um, you know, I wanted to, I wanted a little bit more clear and concrete, and that's not that. Um, but um, I don't know. I mean, on the other hand, it's, you know, that that's what he thinks. I think that's what he thinks the goal is. So whatever helps you imitate God um, to become righteousness through wisdom, that's that's what you got to do, or that's what you got to read. That's what you got how you got to live, um, and that's what I take to be beautiful about using the um, using philosophy in all of this. Um, is ancient philosophy being different than than modern philosophy? Is it's a whole life? Um, he even talks at one point. He calls it the habit of thinking. Um, so virtue is about habit for the ancients. Um, we tend to think about you know, morality and ethics and doing the right thing is what you do in one really difficult moment. But for the ancients, everything was about practice. Um, and so you are formed you by habits, by practice, not only, you know, making the right decision when it comes down to, you know, some really difficult moment, but especially in the little things in the daily life and daily thinking. Are you by habit um, thinking well? Are you by habit um, pursuing what is good and beautiful? Well, I can I pose kind of a counter argument that friends have used on me um, okay. for the sake of our audience, I think, because I'm going to answer at least the way that I think I would answer it, which I think I'm right in my answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but I've had friends who've said, look, the Bible is God's inspired word. So and it is sufficient for all things that you might need. So why not just read the Bible and not read anything else or partake of anything else, only the Bible. And there's a, there is a little bit in that that almost sounds pious and good, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and there have been times, I have to admit, I've been swayed by that. There have been times when I sat there and I thought, you know, he's right. 
Every single time when I could be reading Plato, I could be reading the book of Matthew. Matthew's better, therefore I should just read Matthew. Or Matthew is more productive in creating spiritual good, so I should just read Matthew. Now, I think I do have an answer to that particular thought. And that is, first of all, it is impossible to, quote, just read the Bible, end quote. Nobody does that. The fact that you belong to a church where there's a pastor who reads the Bible and tells you what it means, uh, that involves a lot of things. That involves interpretation. That involves that pastor presumably trying to give you background and historical context and all of that kind of stuff. Secondly, just because we read the Bible doesn't mean we read it incorrectly. People who really, I I mean, I hate to say this, but I, I think oftentimes when people do just try to sit down and read the Bible as a venture in just doing it, They miss out on a lot of stuff because they don't understand the context. They don't understand why it's written, who it's written to. They don't understand the forms, uh, that is, the the grammatical figures of speech, or not grammatical, but literary figures of speech. They need somebody and something to reveal that to them. And I can say plainly, reading books uh, by Greeks and Romans and other Hebrew works open your mind to an understanding of culture, of the language, it absolutely affects the way you see the scripture. Like, I mean, I understand the scripture better today than I did five years ago because of my continued studies. And I way understand, I understand it so much better than I did 10 years ago and 15 years ago because of these things. And I feel like that's in and of itself enough to kind of counteract that particular idea. At the same time, I do think, and it's already been said, all truth is God's truth. Uh, there's a saying I've read that says the devil does not have his own stories, that all stories are of God and that he just takes them and warps them. And so I know for me, I feel like my entire life, every step along the way, every conversation I partake in, every book I read, every movie I watch, every TV show I watch, every song I listen to is an interaction of me with spiritual reality in some sense, whether it be with a person or with an idea. And I have to respond and I have to take that and and do with it what God wants me to do with it. And I think that reading great books and reading great ideas is just, a, it just, it basically ennobles what I'm interacting with. It makes it better. And so, I don't know, that's, that's some thought. I still don't have like a concrete line though of what is it? Like, how can I define it for our listeners so that they know what they can, what they should be reading and what they shouldn't be? This is great. I think this is like, ties in, I think, to the heart of a lot of what Clement I believe it was getting at, and I appreciate Tom's point there. This might be a, um, a bit challenging maybe for some to understand at first glance, but the scriptures, the graphia, the Bible, the graphia, are just, the scriptures are symbols. Uh, writing is symbolic. And so those symbols can lead us to the this, this spiritual inspiration within perhaps. That's, that's great. But I think if I understood Tom correctly, or at least how I understand that, is uh, if you believe in general revelation, i.e. through creation, as Romans explains, that all are without excuse because of the creation, then those are also other symbols uh, that point us to God. And I think that that wouldn't just be um, misleading, but I think it would almost be nearly blasphemous to say uh, you shall not look at certain symbols of God and only at these symbols of God as if to limit or box God in and say his revelation is limited to just this capacity. And I think that um, part of Clement's writing in this is to help the orthodox as he always refers to uh, them in quotations, needs to rise up beyond this. And, and he says, this is one of my favorite passages, the so-called orthodox are like beasts, which work out of fear. They do good works without knowing what they are really doing. And so just as he's avoiding the Gnosticism on one extreme, he's saying, if we're not careful, we're going to be doing these, quote, pious acts out of ignorance. And instead of having true spiritual value in us interacting with a spiritual realm, as, as Tom mentioned, um, we're, we're limiting God and limiting ourselves ultimately um, in our interaction with God. The Gnostic vision, in the, in the Christian sense, the, the proper Gnostic, gets this uh, blessed vision, the beatific, beatific vision in which he can see reality in the spiritual state. And so when Chad was mentioning a moment ago this idea of uh, it's a life, philosophy is, is a way of living life. I mean, this is getting to the heart of Christianity. It's the way. Uh, the Hodos, that's what originally the Christians were called, the followers of the way. It's a way of interacting spiritually with our reality. 
Which, by the way, guys, I got to run. I got to get out of here. So we got um, <laughs> to tie this up. Okay. Well, shoot. I was gonna I was gonna push back just a little bit because I I the 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 one other question that I was thinking of that's a different way of asking what Tom has asked is must you go through all of this? Um, you know, reading the philosophers, um, learning the languages, reading lots of different things. Must you do that to be uh, a Christian? And I, because to which I would respond, no. Um, and to which I would say, in effect, if you go through all of this, and if you can, uh, if if you do read philosophy, if you do look to the um, truth that is in all around us, and not only in the scriptures. It's just more to your benefit, but I wouldn't take away at the same time and say that it's um, it's requisite as required for every single Christian to go about their life in the way that I did. Um, oh, I agree. I agree. Yeah. yeah, I think that's akin to saying, do you have to study medicine or, and be a doctor to be healthy? Yeah. And the yeah. answer is not at all. Those guys don't have, you know, this perfected, you know, the science, the art of that. Um, and that can help you be healthy. Absolutely. But absolutely not a requisite. Yeah. Yep. That's a perfect analogy. analogy. Um, Well, then I don't have to say anything more about that. Yeah. So anyway, that's a very good analogy and that's kind of what I wanted to say. Um, But uh, well, all right. So uh, yeah, I don't know what we need to say to sum up Uh, any, there was some really good stuff about the uh, necessity of choice um, in all of this that I did want to, you know, Um, that was another point I was going to make. Well, yet again, Every church father believes in free will. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Was this was no? This is actually a really good point because that was another thing I wanted to say about faith. Is it's akin to like Aristotle's assertion for those first principles, which he thought you had to do out of free will. But yeah. anyway, yeah. Well, and and it's also he actually draws it too from the Stoics, which is fascinating uh, because the Stoics were the ancient fatalists. Um, but he still, <laughs> even the Stoics believed that you had to have an ascent of mind at root. Yeah. You might not even be able to control your body in some strict sense, but your mind, you still have a choice. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so there's this, you know, so he goes to great lengths to defend uh, our ability to ascent uh, to the truth, which is kind of what, you know, it, it's, a, it's an extrapolation of, of, Socrates, which is an extrapolation, uh, which Aristotle uh, elucidates and the Stoics right. follow. So, uh, right. but yeah, the necessity of assenting and choice. Um, yeah, I don't know what we're going to do when we get to Calvin, but we've been. <laughs> well, that's not going to happen for about 17 years. So I don't think. <laughs> okay, we don't have to worry about it yet. <laughs> okay. All right. Last well, words. Yep. Good job. Sorry, we have to cut you off. I just got to get somewhere. I have to be somewhere by 5.30, which is in 11 minutes. minutes. All right, right. cool. Thanks, Chad. Thanks, Chad. Chad. Yep. See you guys. Thanks for listening to A History of Christian Theology. We'll be back next week with Stromata 4 and 5. And then the week after that, we will have Stromata 6 and 7. Before finally getting to another special guest, we will have my friend Caleb as we discuss Tertullian, uh, the first great writer from North Africa. Thanks for listening.